Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and worker bees everywhere sighing, I didn't sign up for this. It's Thursday at three o'clock, and you know what that means? Live from the Michigan State University campus, and live from Chowchilla, California, it's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Patten, aka BBP, international superstar, and your own personal diva of SLA. And speaking of worker bees, here are my own little honey creators, my co-host Angelica Kramer <laughs> and our stand-in for today, co-host Dustin DeFelice. Say hi, kids. Hello. <laughs> bzz, bzz, bzz. Does that make me you the better queen? Be careful. You better be careful. De- no, there's only one queen around here. You better be careful, Dustin. She's going to sting you. She's uh-huh. going gonna, gonna... to. But I'm sweet as honey. Oh, you are sweet as honey. People, <laughs> ju- people just think Angela's got that German <laughs> about her, but she's, right? she's a pretty sweet lady. Yeah, she's yeah. a pretty sweet lady. Thank you. So where the- we're going to play a game today. You know that <laughs> Where's Waldo? Those books, Where's Waldo? So we're going to ask, Where is Walter? So we're going to let people guess where Walter is. Oh, um, nice. So when people call in, when people call in, we're going to ask them what city they think Wal- Walter's in another city. So we're going to ask people they can guess the city that Walter is in. So that's when you call in today, um, you get a chance to uh, guess where Walter. If you guess where Walter is, you get a prize. Um, so there you go. So we're going to have three prizes today. We have the SLA quiz, the Diva quiz, we have the Where Is Walter quiz, and of course we have the book giveaway today <laughs> for everybody who calls in. Why are you laughing, Angelica? We haven't awesome. started yet. Yeah, I, mean, no, I love it. I haven't even said anything funny. I haven't all said anything quizzes. funny. All the quizzes. I all like the it. quizzes. Where's Walter? Pretty funny. Where's Walter? Yeah. Can you imagine one of those little books, you know, with all those different people on the page and there's Walter peeking out with his glasses? <laughs> It'll be a book of only page 32. <laughs> we had to nice. do that. We, had, nice. we have to do that sometime. Um, I got this great picture of me and Walter. I got to get uh, I got to get framed and put up in the studio. It's a it's it's a fun picture of us together. Um, yeah, so Walter's away at a meeting, but we won't say where because that's that's um, part of the call in today. And uh, we have a great topic today. Um, we're going to focus on something that emerges from chapter three of my book. As everybody knows, we're doing the countdown to Actful, right? When's Actful? What's the date for Actful, Dustin? Do you know? November eleventh and twelfth. Sound right? Thirteenth. No, it's the sixteenth and seventeenth and eighteenth. I think <laughs> it's the six. It's the weekend before Thanksgiving, so the sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth, or something 18th. like that. Yeah. Sounds good. So, uh, God, I'm going to stop asking Dustin questions. I'm going to ask Angelica all the questions now. Actually, yeah, I think for it's calendar, just for sure. 18, 19, but, really. but anyways, everybody knows we're counting down to Actful, so we're doing, uh, we're reviewing a, a particular topic in every chapter of my book, one per week, depending on the chapter. This week, we're on chapter three. Um, the topic is, the actually, the focus of chapter three of my book is the nature of acquisition. Does anybody know what the principle is that chapter? Because all my chapters are a principle about language teaching. It is. Yeah, I'm asking you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The principle is that um, language acquisition is constrained by internal and external factors. Um, That's a principle that you need to be aware of if you're going to be a language teacher. So today we're going to focus on what those constraints, what some of the constraints are in language acquisition. So we'll get to that topic in a while, but I'm throwing that out there so people know. Oh, I'm going to do a shout. Luca wants me to do a little shout out for something. I'm going to do it. Where where is it? I got it here somewhere. Hold on. I got all my papers lined up here in a row. I got too many papers. Here we go. There's some cool, if you are in the East Lansing area at all, this is language related. Um, the Center for Language Teaching Advancement, which Angelica is the Associate Executive Director of, 
The Center for Language Teaching Advancement, aka CELTA, is bringing the MSU and East Lansing communities together on November 7th at 6 p.m. for SAGA, S-A-G-A, SAGA, Discovering the World Through Storytelling, right? Um, this will be a time for celebrating the power of languages and how learning a second language shapes the way we view the world. So um, CELTA is asking people to bring their unique perspectives, their willingness to learn from each other, and passion for languages. The event will be at Scene Metro Space in downtown East Lansing on November 7th. Again, that's at 6 p.m. More info uh, can be seen on our website, T with BBP, the Twitter page, or the CELTA Twitter and Facebook pages. So again, that's November 7th at 6 p.m. If you're in the East Lansing area, you want to just come by and see, maybe you're in a neighboring town, maybe you're in Ann Arbor, maybe you're in Detroit, uh, maybe in Grand Rapids, just buzz on over and see us on Saga Night. That's November 7th at 6 p.m. So there we go. We got so many things going on at MSU. I can't keep up. I just, I just can't keep up. Yep. It's a lot going on. I can't. You know, there's just too much going on. We're just busy, 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 busy like worker bees. Just busy, busy all the time like a little worker bees. All right. So any other announcements before we move on? Well, yeah, there is maybe another shout out here on Mixler. We have a listener who's telling us that there are 11 teachers new to CI engaged in professional development right now, and they're all listening. And at one point... Wow. At one point, they would like you to um, give them some advice that you would have for them starting out but that can be later. Oh, right. Well, maybe someone from that group should call in and just ask <laughs> that question. Because that what be my something? first piece of advice is call in and you win a free, you got a chance to win a free book that could be part of your professional development. So mm -hmm. that's my first piece of advice. All right. That's great um, I'm going to go ahead. Isn't that great advice? That's good advice. Get a freebie. I'm always about getting freebies. You know me, I'm always about giving myself away. <laughs> <laughs> As I once said to people, I ain't free, but I'm reasonable. <laughs> All right. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to start. I'm going to go ahead and give the SLA challenge question out now because it's related to our topic today. Um, and that way someone can call in with the SLA challenge question answer. Oh, Dustin, who's handling the phones for you today? We've got the studly Chad on the line. Chad. Okay. So you're going to call in today and talk to Chad, not to, uh, not to um, Dustin today. So, okay. So here's the SLA challenge question. True or false? The major function of universal grammar is to guarantee acquisition. Again, true or false? The major function of universal grammar is to guarantee acquisition. Call in with your answer. Um, and, ooh, where's my sheet with all the information about the phone numbers and stuff? Because I can never remember this stuff. <laughs> okay, so we've given you the SLA challenge question. You call in and uh, win a prize if you got the correct answer. Again, um, keep your cell phones close by because Chad is waiting for you to call in. Again, a little bit later, once we get the SLA challenge question out of the way, we'll give you the Diva challenge question. I'll read that question at some point and you'll have time to pick up. You punch in our number, dial our number, uh, poke the number. I don't know what verb to use anymore for phones. I grew up when you actually dialed phones. Those are old days where you actually dialed the phone. Huh. Um, but now I guess we just say punch in the number or what? What do you do? Touch the number? I don't know what you do. Touch the number, yeah. Now, Type the number. You can just, when I'm in my car, just go, Siri, call Dustin for me, please. <laughs> and I got that Australian Siri guy. He goes, okay, I'll call Dustin. <laughs> um, uh, and so just, anyway, so call Chad and tell Chad that you want to answer either the SLA challenge question or the Diva challenge question. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, that's 517-884-4321. Um, if you're too shy to talk, just go ahead and call in. Chad will walk you through it. Chad's a good guy. 
Uh, Angelica will be looking at Mixler to see what issues come up. And remember, Gil, we are a call and talk show. We want those newbies that are in that professional development that Angelica just talked about. We want you to call in. At least one of you needs to call in and say hi and, and ask your question um, that you want to ask. Again, pick up the phone and dial us at 517-884-4321. There we go. Okay. Where's all my paper? I just, I need a new system. I need a new system home here in my home <laughs> studio. I can hardly wait to be back with you guys next week. Next week, I'm going to be there live with you guys. Yay. You know that, don't you? Woo-hoo. I'm going to be harassing you in person. Oh, boy. I'm harassing you in person. A whole new level. All right. What should I do next? Should we go get in the topic? I actually think we have a caller. We have a caller already. Oh, my God. We have a caller. from Arizona, it looks like. Let's see who we have. We have Angela. Angela's calling. Angela, are you on the line? I am. Hey, hey Angela, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Phoenix, Arizona. From the great city of Phoenix. Okay, before you're calling because I think you want to answer the SLA challenge question, right? Sorry. (laughs) Is that everybody in the back applauding? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. Professional development. Oh, great, 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 great. Okay, so uh, I, I see that you want to answer the SLA challenge question, but are you going to take a stab at the where's Walter question first? <laughs> you know, it's been a little hard for me to hear about Walter, so I will, can take the challenge question. Okay, well then, maybe somebody in the audience wants a guess. Just All you have to do is guess the city where Walter is. Okay, so here's the question again, the SLA challenge question. Um, true or false, the major function of universal grammar is to guarantee acquisition. Angela, what's your answer? My guess is false. False. You are correct. Ding, ding, Yay. ding, ding, ding. I bring, I bring this issue up because we're going to talk about universal grammar in a minute when we get into our constraints. Oh. Um, <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people mistakenly have thought or think that universal grammar is a language acquisition device and it guarantees acquisition, but it doesn't. Um, the function of universal grammar is to make sure that what learners create in their heads obeys particular principles and features of language. So what universal grammar does is it guides acquisition, but it doesn't guarantee acquisition. Actually, nothing can guarantee acquisition, right? Right. Right. There we okay, go. That's right. Good. Right. Okay, Angela, any other questions from your group while, you, while you're on the phone here? Ooh, any other questions from the group? <laughs> <laughs> She's consulting. Do they want okay, advice um, about being CI teachers? That's a piece of advice for those of us starting okay. comprehensible input in the classroom. Oh, the best piece of advice. Because uh, you know what's interesting is you guys should call in next week. Guess what our topic is next week? Input in the classroom. So that's okay. We can talk about it. I'll just give you one piece of advice right now. I have, I tell, and I'll, I'll be giving this next week again so you get a preview here. When I work with my instructors here at MSU, I have a rule of thumb. Um, and it stems from uh, some, something I talk about in chapter four of my book. And that is you don't want to talk at students. You want to talk with students. So what does that mean? That means that you don't blah, 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 expecting your students to understand. Um, no matter whether you do... Yeah, uh, no matter whether you do a, a TPRS or the kind of input-based tasks and input interaction we do here or some hybrid version, because what I do is a hybrid version between TPRS and task-based stuff. No matter what you do with comprehensible in the classroom, my rule of thumb is um, don't talk at, talk with. And the, the, little, the little trick I give my TAs and instructors is if you say more than three sentences without engaging your students, you're now talking at them. Mm. 
So two, three cents out of your mouth, and then you have to ask them about something you just said, what you're talking about, their opinion about what you just said, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, in storytelling, for example, it would be asking something about the story you're building, right? And so you might say, for example, with Angelica, um, Angelica, uh, or I'm showing Angelica and Dustin a picture of a, a guy, right? I go, okay, this is a student. He's a student at MSU. He's not a student at University of Michigan. And then I'd look at Dustin and go, Dustin, is this a student or a professor? And Dustin would say? Student. He's a student, right. Um, Angelica, where is he a student? Is he a student at, at University of Michigan? No, at MSU. No. MSU, good. Okay, so what's the student's name? Let's give him a name. Okay, this student's name is Ray. His name is Ray Galinsky. And then, we go, and then I'd be asking another question right away. So the idea is make sure you engage your students from the beginning and keep them constantly involved with the input. That's the best piece of advice I can give you. Always keep that in the back of your mind. Again, two or three Thank sentences, you. three or three sentences and engage them. Otherwise, you're talking at and not with. Okay, there's my advice. Thank preview you for so next much. week. Okay. All right. Thanks, Angela. Talk to you soon. Have a good day. Can, can I guess where Walter is? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. Now you can guess where Walter is. Go ahead. Um, I'm going to guess Los Angeles. Sorry. Nope. Okay, everybody listening out there for, for playing the Where's Walter game. He's not in Los Angeles, but that's a good guess. But you're going to get a prize anyway because right. you answered the SLA challenge question. Thanks, oh, uh, awesome. thanks Angela. Okay. Thank Talk you. Talk later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Angela. Bye. It's so funny. I am so used to saying Angelica. I almost called her Angela. <laughs> <laughs> I nice. did because I'm so used to Angela Merkel. And I don't yeah. know any Angelas. All I know are Angelica and Angela Merkel and <laughs> and all those names. So anyway. Okay, well, let me get into the topic of in, internal constraints so I can throw a few ideas out there that people might want to call in about. Then I'll give the Diva Challenge question or read the Twitter press after that or something. So let me get my, let me get my paperwork here because I'm trying to uh, – Again, this is just, this little studio I have at home is just not, not, not functioning well. And Danny always yells at me if I don't lean into my microphone, and I, I, uh, I'm a little cramped <laughs> in my space here. Okay, so I'm going to try and do this this way. Are you guys looking at me? Look <laughs> at how funny this looks, right? This is, what I gotta, this is what I go through. Look at this. Okay. All right, so the, today's topic is about acquisition. Specifically, we're going to focus on constraints of acquisition, right? So what okay. do we mean? What do we mean by constraints? And how do we know that these things exist? So let's take the second question first. How do we know constraints exist? Okay, we know there are constraints on acquisition because over and over again in the literature, the research literature, the empirical research literature, we see a set of repeated findings. Okay, one is that- repeated findings. Yes. Hello. It's Walter. It's Walter. (laughs) That's so weird. Somebody, that was very Nobody weird. even told me you were on the phone, Walter. <laughs> I think they did that intentionally. I think they did too. Okay, Chad, you're fired. All right. Um, <laughs> so, Walter, don't tell people where you are because we have the guessing game today about where in the world is Walter. So, don't tell them All where right, you are. All right, I won't tell right. anyone where I am. But you safely okay. landed. Now you Say gave something away. You safely landed. Did you, not, not really. Yeah, you did because no. that means he flew. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. He could fly. There's Dustin. hundreds and hundreds of cities he could fly to. Oh. Okay, oh. no, 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 Walter. Talk about that. Talk about that. No, 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 no
Oh, good. Did I talk over it quickly? Did I talk? Blah, 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 blah. You can't hear that. You can't hear that. Walter, hang up. Walter, hang up. <laughs> okay, love you guys. Have a great show. All right, bye, bye Walter. <laughs> hang up, hang up, quick. <laughs> I tried. I tried to talk over this. That was awesome. How is it when you're in the that airport, you can't understand what they're saying, but we can hear it clearly through his phone. I know. I know, right? All right. So where was I before Chad interrupted me? No, that was that was sweet of Walter to call it. That was great. Okay, so where? Yeah, oh, constraints. That's where we're constraints. Um, you were, we're asking about, ourselves, yeah, what the yeah. Empirical, empirical research literature is showing. Right, exactly. So what I was saying is that we know there are constraints in acquisition because over and over again in the research. Uh, we see a number of findings that just get repeated in the research. The first is that acquisition is slow, pretty slow. It's not fast. Um, so something is constraining it, making it slow. Um, it is ordered. Um, it is highly resistant to external forces such as correction and explicit learning and teaching. Now, most of us should be, as we're, if we're teachers, should be familiar with all of these findings. We're going to quickly read the second two. The first is that, the, uh, is that acquisition is ordered. And what this means is that properties of language are acquired either in stages over time uh, or that some parts of language are acquired before others. Okay, so we know, for example, in the work that I've done over the years and people who followed uh, my lead, um, we know that the linking verbs in Spanish, said and estar, are acquired in predictable stages over time. There's four stages in the acquisition of these copular verbs, these linking verbs. Uh, we know, for example, that learners acquire negation in English in predictable stages over time. You don't just suddenly get negation. It has to evolve over time in particular stages. We also know that learners acquire such things as masculine gender before they acquire fe feminine gender agreement. And also they acquire singular agreement before they acquire plural agreement and so on. In languages like Spanish, Turkish, even German, right? We also know that learners acquire ing in English before past tense, and they acquire past tense before they can acquire the third person s in English. What is also interesting about the order development we found is that learners, when you think about it, can make all kinds of quote-unquote errors, what I prefer to call non-native-like structures, right? They can make all different kinds, but they don't. The kinds of errors, the kinds of things that learners do are pretty selective. Um, when they could do X, they don't do X. They actually do Y when they do something non-native. Um, again, there are examples of all these ordered things and the stage development and, the, and that kind of stuff in different kinds of languages in the literature. Now, we also know that these orders and stages and the particular kinds of errors learners make and so on are completely, I say completely, I could hedge and say largely, but I'm going to say completely, are completely unaffected by correction and teaching. This comes as a shock to a lot of teachers, but the literature is pretty clear on this, that these orders, the stage development, and the way things come in A before B before C are completely resistant to correction and teaching, right? So that means that you can't teach those things away. They're always going to reassert themselves, right? We can't teach the stages away. We can't reorder the acquisition of things. And we also can't correct them away. So these observations are some that we have known for a good deal of time. In fact, the contemporary field of SLA research got started looking at this kind of stuff back in the 1970s. 
Um, they have not been refuted by any empirical research. Stages keep appearing and, and, and what learners do and don't do um, keeps appearing in the literature. In fact, I think it's safe to say that now in 2017, the idea of order development uh, and that you can't teach order development away is, is, has been strengthened by the research over the years. So what these observations lead us to is that there are learner internal constraints on language acquisition. So something is going on in the learner's head, the learner's mind brain that is control of acquisition and how acquisition happens. Now, of course, there are different perspectives on this, right? Dustin, you teach your course on SLA in the MA program, and we all, know, we all know this. There are different perspectives. So is there something like universal grammar that is constraining acquisition? Um, are there general learning mechanisms that aren't language-related, that are universal grammar that constrain acquisition? Or is there some combination that constrains acquisition? Um, I'm only referring here to the things internal to the learner. There are external things, too, but we're not, we don't have time to talk about the external things. Now, I've on the side that both, both universal grammar and learning mechanisms are involved in acquisition and guide and constrain it in particular ways. Um, they are mechanisms that act only on input data, and they don't act on explicit teaching, explicit information, or correction. So why is it? Why is it that universal grammar and these learning mechanisms that help us get language in our head, why do they only act on input? The answer is very simple. What's the simple answer to why these mechanisms only act on input data? The answer is that's how our brains and our heads are wired. The mechanisms that work on these things only work on input data because we're wired that way. So I want to know what your thoughts are on this. What implications are there for teachers and curriculum development if we acknowledge how learners are in control of acquisition and that we are not in control of acquisition, but they are? And so give us a call. Again, what's the number, Angelica? 517-884-4321. Call in, ask us a question, give us your thoughts, what do you think the implications are, and so on. We'd love to hear from you about this topic. It's a great topic. And I'm glad that the teacher development people that, that are beginning um, the process of working with CI are hearing some of this because this helps them think about why they're doing what they're doing. Okie dokies, what should I do next? Luca's giving me a little signal here on the screen that says I should do the diva question next. Should I do yeah. that next? Yeah. Sure. We, had a, we had a fast take. We had a fast mm -hmm. take on the yep, universal absolutely. grammar question. That was good. Okay, so where's my diva question? Oh, here, here it is. Here's my diva question, I found it. Okay, you're gonna love this. You know, notice, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but recently I've been, refer, I've been doing language-related diva questions, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So this is, this is quasi-language related. Um, the great, here's the question, everybody. The great French chanteuse, Edith Piaf, is known for what signature song that she recorded in 1947? Okay, again, the great French chanteuse, Edith Piaf, the, one of the biggest divas in French history, is known for what signature song that she recorded and wrote, actually, uh, in 1947? Call in with your answer to that and win a prize, and you can also try to guess where Walter is while you're on the phone. Okay. That's a tough question. That's what Google's for. Wow. <laughs> Was she a diva on. in 47? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. One of the original ones? Oh, gosh, yes. Hmm. Yeah, she and... Uh, on, on our side over here, we didn't really have a singer that was a diva like that. Our big diva in those days was like Mae West. She was really, she dominated um, 
film and, and song and kinds of things like that. Um, and on the, on the other side of the pond, it was EFPF was huge um, in Europe. Um, yeah, so she's quite a lady. I actually, when I was in Argentina, when I was filming Destinos, uh, Liliana Booth, who was the star of Destinos, and I were both big theater buffs. Uh, we went every night to the theater <laughs> in Argentina. <laughs> Not every night, but like we went four nights a week. And one of the plays we saw was the life story of Edith Piaf. Oh, it was oh, it was so good. It was just so good. And the woman who who played it, um, uh, she uh, she was just phenomenal. And did, didn't Mary Cotillard? Didn't she do Edith Piaf in a movie? Didn't she win an Academy Award for that? I like that you would ask us that. Right. I'm going to okay, say well, yes. Googleize it. Googleize it. Googleize it. I think it was like six or seven years ago, maybe she won an Academy Award. And I think she played Edith Piaf in the movie, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Okie dokies. Okay, I got to get my Twitter press out so I can stimulate some more conversation here for people in the audience who want to call in. I'm going to switch it. Let me just, I'm going to do this real quick with my microphone so I can get this piece of paper here in front of me. You're going to hear a little rustling, people. I'm sorry about that because I'm not in the studio. So I, I'm a little constricted here in what I can do. Okay, so uh, what um, what Luke asked people was um, input is the only ingredient for language acquisition. You had to agree or disagree. And interestingly, there were slightly more people, it's like American politics, <laughs> slightly more people disagreed than agreed. I think it was 51%. Is that what it is, Dustin? 51%, 51% yeah, disagreed. Disagreed that input is the only data for acquisition and 48 or 49% agreed that it was. And I think some of the, some of the questions that popped up on the Twitter feed was that, what do we mean by data, right? Mm, right. Um, and uh, so some of the things people are asking about are not data, but mechanisms um, in the learner's mind that act on data. Um, so the answer actually is input is the only data because that's how the, 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 the brain is, is wired. Um, but Keith says, for example, on the Twitter feed, Keith says comprehensible, in input, comprehensible input is necessary. Incomprehensible input is just noise to learners. Now, I have something to say about that. Remind me, Angelica and Destin, to come back to that comment. Because okay. there, there was actually an article about why incomprehensible input can be important for language acquisition. Um, and then Longinus asks, for those who think it's not the only data necessary, what other data are needed? And then Laura says, perhaps I misunderstand how data is being used. I suppose data and input could be interpreted as synonymous. In this case, yeah, I think there are synonymous for us. And then Rose says, how about prior background knowledge? Like if you're trying to develop mental image of arbol, which means tree, you need access to mental image of tree. Well, prior background knowledge is not data. It's something part of your, it's part of the mechanisms you have in your head that help you interpret the data that's coming in. So that's one example that I was talking about that, that um, some other factor might not be data, but, but part of the internal mechanisms. Um, Ginny says, yes, but it has to be quality input. Of course, that's right. Um, Richard says, looking at my young daughters, some negotiation meaning seems essential once they're ready. Um, not sure what that means. Um, again, negotiation of meaning is a process, but it's not data. So what's embedded in that negotiation meaning is what? Input. Important, and right. so those who work with negotiation of meaning um, and interaction hypothesis, which we're going to talk about next week, by the way, I wanna, I'd love to interview Mike Long and get him on the phone because he's the one who uh, originated the uh, interaction hypothesis. It's not that interaction is necessary because you have to talk, but interaction is useful because it gets you better input. Um, 
And then uh, Prof. Schwab says, negotiation meaning causes learner to get more level-appropriate input. Hey, I just said that. We were on the same page. Look at that. <laughs> uh, Mary says, uh, I'm also curious about what students think they need and how that affects language learning, especially perceived needs and motivation. That's a good question. Learners always think they, they know something but, uh, or need something, but sometimes they don't. Okay, so those are some of the things that came up on Twitter. Good stuff that, that came up. People are always, we have the best audience that, with good ideas. I really, yep, we do. I'm really happy with the people who listen to our show. They're really good. And speaking of people who listen to our show, there's a call on the line. Jason, are you on the line? I'm on the line, I think. I don't know. Hey, I can hear you great, Jason. Where are you calling from? Uh, Laguna Beach, California. Laguna Beach, California. Now, is this a Jason I know? Because I know about eight Jasons. <laughs> is this, this one of the eight Jason Jasons you know? I know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a Jason I know. Okay, I know. I, I know who this Jason is. And I'm going to just share something. Jason and I have a love of Havanese that we share. Because I have Havanese. Yes, we're big Havanese fans. And um, remind me later on, when we get to the thing on tasks in a couple of weeks, that's part of my book, I'm going to share with you a new task I just developed is, are you a cat or are you a dog person? Very interesting. <laughs> but anyway, Jason, so you're calling about the Diva Challenge question, correct? Yes, this is one of my favorite Divas. Huh. Oh, wow. All right. Okay, so here we go. Um, here's the question for everybody. Once again, the great French chanteuse Edith Piaf is known for what signature song that she wrote and then recorded in 1947. Jason? I'm thinking it's La Vie en Rose. La Vie yeah. en Rose. That's wow. ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Can you sing any of it, Jason? I sing it almost every Friday night at our little bar. Get <laughs> out of here. Are you kidding me? No. I have allergies right now, but... Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas. Yeah. Oh my God! I gotta give him. I gotta give him. A, I gotta give him a double present for that. Man, I gotta give no Jason kidding. a double. That was awesome. really good. Allergies. Still I love And he also noticed that Jason knows how in French singing you add the silent e in there, mm-hmm. you stick it in because mm-hmm. you need that little syllable in there. It was very, very good, Jason. All right, so you win a prize for that. People, you hear people sing it, and they sing "La Vie en Rose." No, it's La Vienne Rose. Yeah. There's a, there's a yeah. syllable there. But it breaks the rhythm of the song if you don't do those silent E's. Uh, even like yeah. you even did parle instead of parle. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's what the cadence of the song is. French, is. French likes to make use of those silent sounds in singing because it works with the substructure of the song. So, Jason, before you go, we let you go. Um, do you uh, want to take a stab at where Walter is? Where in the world is Walter? <laughs> Well, um, I thought, is it Dustin's comment was really good? Because I always struggle in airports to hear the announcements. But I thought I heard Salt Lake City loud and clear. Is wow. that right? <laughs> That's not right. No. Oh. <laughs> Unless he got on the wrong plane. But thank, oh, yeah. there you go. He could have been sitting well, in the you, wrong gate. All right. Oh, yeah, there okay. you, go. You, you get a prize anyway, Jason, and you get in the, and you get in the mix for winning a book. So, uh, cool. great. But All right, we're going to let you go, Jason. Thanks show. for calling. Okay. Okay. Ciao. Talk to you Bye, soon. Jason. Bye-bye. That was really good. That's yeah. Really good. He's, he had the, a nice I can just see him in a karaoke, right? karaoke yeah, bar with I a cigarette too. and a martini. Yep. La Vie en Rose. I can just see it. Right. 
All right. Um, any email questions or Twitter questions or Mixler questions or comments? I've got a few questions for you, Bill, if you'll take them. Some it of my depends. students. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, are actually, they easy or are they hard? No, no. These are really, really good questions. They're on topic as well. Okay. And one comes right. from the Diva Lip Sync winner, Ooh, Francesca. Okay. So she wants Francesca. to know. Francesca, yes. If she remembers correctly, she said, you said in a previous episode that teachers should delay students reading as long as possible because it could create confusion. So Crash and posits that EVR, FVR, free volunteer reading, aids language acquisition, even if it's garbage. So when should we start them reading and how much scaffolding, right? So this is an input question. How much scaffolding is appropriate and for how long at the novice levels? No, I don't think I said that. What I said is that, um, that it's possible that the research suggests that early reading can somehow interfere with the process of phonological acquisition. Because as learners try to picture the word in their heads that they're hearing, they then start mapping their L1 sounds on it, as opposed to filtering, trying to filter on the sounds in, in a way that allows universal grammar of phonology and phonetics to map sounds on to what they're hearing. And so this is why, for example, with a lot of students, you know, they'll, if they hear in Spanish as a classic example, we see in the college level all the time, um, hermana, 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 hermana for sister. And then they see it in print and all of a sudden they start saying hermana. Um, and then they start hearing hermana because what they're doing is visualizing the word and then mapping that onto what they're hearing. And so there's something to that. Um, so I'm not suggesting withhold reading. I just suggest you be aware that providing reading very, very early on can uh, be a contributing factor into um, the delay of, of pronunciation and phonology. But again, um, the research is not clear on that, so I'm throwing that as a possibility. But I would imagine it's a challenge if you're a novice level student. How do you free read? What's available that you can free read? Right. That I mean, and there are places. There are places like Fluency Matters and NTPRS, places like that are developing books. We just did one in my class yesterday. Um, my foundation's language teaching class reviewed the first chapter of Brandon Brown wants a dog in Spanish, and in the first page you get nothing but basically three or four words, and they're just repeated over and over. So it says something like, Brandon Brown wants a dog. Brandon Brown wants a big dog. Brandon Brown does not want a little dog. Brandon Brown wants a big dog. And it keeps doing things like that. Brandon Brown wants a dog like Clifford. Brandon Brown wants a, 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 doesn't want a red dog. Brandon Brown wants a brown dog or a white dog. Brandon Brown wants a big dog who's, that's, I mean, it does things like that. And so you just need a handful of words and you can start reading right away. So, and then some of those things um, are teacher assisted in the classroom. It just depends. But there is not a lot for at the novice stages for to do free voluntary reading. It's just not. Um, like um, one of the people who, who on our Twitter press said, some, a lot of the reading could just be noise, right? Right. Um, and you're just picking out words. And I mean, maybe that's okay. I don't know. Um, but we do need, we, there is a need in the market for stuff that early level learners can read if we want them reading early on. So. And our Mixler feed has some suggestions for that too. So send your students to reread what people are suggesting, suggesting <laughs> on Mixler, suggesting. She just started reading recently. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she it's just started reading recently. I recently <laughs> just started speaking, apparently. <laughs> wow. Okay, so 
so that's 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 what I think on that. And again, that's that's more my thoughts and and based on observations and and one or two things I read in the past about this, but I, I can't cite it. So I'm going to be I'm going to really do a lot of hedging here. But yeah, what else? What else we have on Mixler or on emails or Twitter questions or um, we or some a, other some other source? We had a question here. Well, actually, do you want to take this caller first? Uh, we just, it just came up on my screen. We have a caller on the phone. Yeah, let's take the call. Let's do that. Uh, we have a caller named Rachel. Rachel, you're on the phone. I'm here. Hey, Hi, Rachel, Rachel, where are you calling from? I'm your, your friend in Bulgaria. I remembered you, but I had to make you, this, my job is to make you say it. So yes, yeah. yeah, Rachel from yeah. Bulgaria. Hey, Rachel's calling again. Hi. What's up? What's up, Rachel? What you calling about? What's on your mind? Um, well, so pretty much all I've ever learned about universal grammar is from listening to your show. Um, so <laughs> I have a question about it. Um, I was wondering, is it, if you say you're comparing learning two languages side by side, like Spanish and Italian, are the features of the languages necessarily going to be acquired around the same times, or are they going to vary depending on the languages? Um, it, 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 uh, there's so many factors involved in answering that question. If you're learning two languages at once, um, and a lot depends on the input interaction with the input that you have. So, um, you, you, if you get equal amounts, if you get balanced input acquisition will be, it'll look very similar, but people very seldom get balanced input. They usually get more input on one language than they do another. This is true in bilingual heritage environments. It's true when people are growing up in nannies or whatever, or mannies, mannies or nannies, whatever they're called. <laughs> um, so, and, and so universal grammar doesn't really tell us about that. What universal grammar just says, if you're learning Spanish, you know, there's certain properties that, that are going to have to be obeyed. And if you're learning Italian, certain properties are going to be obeyed. But it's not going to tell us anything about rate. Right. Um, that's all, that a lot of rate is handled by input and the frequency and the input you're, you're getting stuff. So, so that, that's a good question, Rachel. And it's, it's, again, it's up in the air and it depends on the exposures you're getting and how much balanced input you're getting in both languages. How's okay. that? That's all I can say. Okay. That's, that's a good fine. question. Thank do you want to, your name will go in the hat for book. And also, do you want to take a stab at where Walter is before I get you off the air? Is he in Chicago? Ding ding, wow. ding 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 ding! Yes. yes, there you go. How did you guess that? Did you did just you guess it? guess or what? I did hear it and I googled it. <laughs> oh, you smart, go. very she smart. The, I tried so hard to talk over that speaker. <laughs> okay, yes, Walter. Walter's at the annual. He and uh, Matt Kaneski, who works with me in French, they are at the annual CIC meeting, which is stands for the Council on Institutional Cooperation, which no longer exists, but we still call it the CIC meeting. It's all the um, department heads and all the people who run language programs get together and talk about issues for a day and so on. I am not there, obviously. Normally, I would go if I were in town, um, but I'm not there. So Walter and Matt are representing our language programs dutifully. So good for you, Rachel. So you get a prize for that and, you get a, <laughs> and your name also goes in the hat for, um, for calling in. So there you go. Great. Good luck. Thanks okay. for calling, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye, okay. Rachel. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. No, That's I a good question because a lot of people, I mean, we need to clarify universal grammar as an internal constraint. A lot of people wonder what it really does. And it really gets very simple but very powerful. It just constrains what your language can be. It says, 
here's how language works. And you have to work within these parameters. You can't make up a language on your, your brain can't make up a new language. It's, it's gonna, this is why, for example, people don't understand, here's how universal grammar works. I'll give you one example. If you look at classical Latin and you look at Japanese, they look like two completely different languages, right? Yes. Right. On the surface. They don't sound the same. But when you start to look at the language, the syntax and the, and the morphology and how the languages behave, they are so similar, it's not funny. And that's because universal grammar says there are certain properties. If you do X, Y is a consequence of doing X. If you do A, B is a consequence of doing A. And so what Latin and Japanese and languages like them, they opt for X and they wind up having to do Y at the same time. They wind up opting for A, so then they have to do B at the same time. And all these things have a domino effect. And basically Latin and uh, classical Latin and Japanese are, are the same language with different words <laughs> and different morphological properties. Um, but they're basically the same language. Um, and so that's what universal grammar does. It puts real constraints on what languages do. And so when a learner is learning a language, he or she automatically starts to do this without thinking. If the if the if the internal device starts to go, oh, this must be this kind of language, then a, a, a bunch of options and consequences happen because of that. But if the data are suggesting to the language learner internally that it's a this other kind of language, then these other consequences happen because of that, and so on. And so each time the learner gets data that gets incorporated, these things get strengthened, and these things happen over time. Okay, we have another caller on the phone. Um, Francisco, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Francisco, where are you calling from? Somewhere in the lower 48. Thanks Somewhere? for taking my call. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Somewhere in the lower 48. Okay, you don't want to tell us. All right. <laughs> We're going to do like a Walter. I want to start off by thanking you for doing the, the uh, podcast, all three of you, and for taking my call. I haven't heard anything oh. you said today because I've been at work and haven't listened. So, um, but this, so this is my right. first time calling. So the first well, thing I had was recommended reading. Um, I, I don't know if you ever heard of the author Jhumpa Lahiri. Mm, no, no, doesn't ring a bell. Okay, she, she was uh, she was either born in India or her parents were from India, but uh, she wrote a book a couple of years ago called In Other Words, and um, and so she's uh, she's an award winning author uh, writing in English, even um, uh, I forget which Indian language her, her parents spoke, but uh, so she had been studying Italian the traditional way over many years, ended up going to Italy a couple of years ago, came for a year and decided that she was going to write in Italian. Uh, and so she stopped speaking. She, she read everything Italian, spoke Italian, lived in Italy, wrote a book in Italian called In Other Words, got it translated. And so they have a bilingual edition now. And she talks about her experience of learning Italian. And uh, a lot of what she says seems to, uh, seems to match uh, things you've talked about uh, in the literature. So I thought that was interesting. I wanted to recommend that. Um, well, great. But before you go on, but wait, Francisco, hold on just one second. Before you go on, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the title of that book, In Other Words. There's another book that was published in the 1990s <laughs> called In Other Words that uh, was published by Ellen Bialystok and Kenji Hakuda, who talk a lot about um, second language acquisition bilingualism. That's the focus of their book. It was a trade paperback. So if you all go online and look at Amazon.com and you type in In Other Words, You'll get two books that are related to language learning, so be aware of that. They have the same title. Okay, Francisco, I just wanted to point that out. Go ahead, go. What was your next yeah, part? Yeah, great, and no, I really appreciate that. Uh, the second, I was hoping that um, Angelica could take a few minutes to talk about her experience with uh, learning English when she found out about 
this thing called second language acquisition, how that impacted her, her studies of English, et cetera, and how she reflects back on her experience learning English, knowing what she knows now. Um, and then I was hoping in the future you might do a few episodes focused on what the learners can do. Uh, so if someone's not in a traditional classroom or any kind of formal language program, I know we get uh, we build the language in our head from getting input, but when you're actually getting input, when you're reading, when you're engaged in a conversation with a native speaker, when you're listening to a podcast, watching a movie, what is it that the learner can do consciously, do mentally to improve their acquisition or not impede it, et cetera? I, I don't. I'm afraid there's based on what I've heard that there's maybe not good research on that, but if there is, yes. I'd be interested in that because Robert really. Yeah, yeah, you gave me an idea, which I'll talk about in a minute. But let's 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 let um, let's uh, Angelica say a few words about your, your what your question was about her experiences learning English and yeah, SLA. Yeah, you know, I, I don't. And I can, I, and I can take my answer off the air. You know, it's fine. I know there's other people, and time is short. But yeah, okay. I, I right. need to think about that for a moment. I mean, I know that for me. Um, I wanted to know rules, right? <laughs> I think that stuff helped me in drilling vocabulary. I mean, this is awful, but this I feel that that, that helped me acquire English. I don't know. I mean, the, the most formative time was when I actually spent significant time abroad in an English-speaking environment and having that input. I think that's really what helped me dare I say, master the language. Yes, you can say that. <laughs> and it was but early think, on for you too, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, first study abroad was, I don't know, probably seventh grade or so, um, short term. But, you know, one year at the end of my high school career, I think that was the most formative time. But, yeah, I need to think about that some more, Francisco, and I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, I think that I think that um, what nobody is going to dispute that. I mean, particularly those of us who do what we do. I'm a linguist. I love structure of language. That's what I do for a living. Uh, I find it fascinating, and and that's how I got into the field. I got into second language acquisition through linguistics, and so there's a handful of us that are like that. And but we're not the norm. I don't think Angelica is the norm. I'm not the norm. Destin's probably not the norm. Um, but we are the norm in the sense that we all have that same experience. For example, French is my second language. Um, and I, I have the same experience as Angelica that I, you know, I love learning about French rules. I, I used to think it helped me and so on. But in retrospect, I realize now that the French I have in my head and the French I can actually use is when I lived with my French roommate. And then when I lived in Quebec one summer and all those things, the, it, it's that interaction with the language and the input that put me over the edge. And so I talk about this in my book that, um, People in the early stages get the feeling that learning rules and studying vocabulary helps them because it does, because you have nothing else at those lower levels. You, I mean, if that's what you were doing, I mean, if that's what you were doing. And so when you, but when you get to a certain level, that has, that falls away and some other system takes over in your head. So it's like you have two different systems, an explicit system and an implicit system. And while your implicit system is building up, your explicit system is doing some work for you because you've got no other system. Um, and uh, then that falls away as your implicit system just kind of just, it literally just takes over one day. We're not, this is not a well-talked about phenomenon, but I talk about it in my book as same thing as having baby teeth and adult teeth. Your baby teeth are doing the job for a while, but then your adult teeth come in and they push that little tooth out 
and that tooth is gone forever. So it's not that the little tooth became the adult tooth. The baby tooth just disappears because it's done its work. It's, it's it, the, the, the adult tooth says, get the hell out of the way and push it out of the way. And that's what the implicit system does. It literally pushes the explicit system out of the way and says, okay, you've done your job. You're, you're, you're done. Bye. Adios. And so it's your implicit system that takes over almost all of your comprehension production. So um, anyway, that's my take on that. So Francisco, are you still there? I, I think you yeah, I just up. lost what you said. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, and so, anyway, so so I think that, I, I don't think Angelica's um, experience is uh, atypical, particularly for people like us, um, but I think there's also something else going on behind the scenes. Um, I did want to say that um, you gave me an idea for a show down the road. I would like to have a show where we interview language learning students. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that would be great. In traditional and non-traditional mm -hmm. programs. So, Programs where they're focused on learning rules, and 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 programs like the one Jason teaches in, who called in earlier, which is a CI program, a TPRS type program, a storytelling program. I like to interview the students and say, "What's your experience? What do you think? What goes through your head?" I'd like to have them talk to us and mm -hmm. see. That'll be an interesting conversation to have. So we might do that down the road. I think I mean, Francis, it would definitely be good to know if there's because if you know if we're just at the mercy of whatever class we can take, et cetera, and the chances of being able to find something that's using comprehensible input at least in the U.S., seems slim. Um, then it seems like we can't do anything else other than read, listen to, you know, get input, engage right. in conversation, right. you know, et cetera. Right. So. Uh, and if Walter, yeah. I mean, Walter seems to be very um, self-effacing about his language ability, so I don't know what languages he may have learned to a high level, but if he wants to say something, that would be... Yeah, well, well, when he comes back, we'll ask him about that. I might ask him about that next week so he can we can follow up on that, so... All right. Uh, really that. Thank, well, my parting comment uh, is uh, it would be great since you're claiming to be an international diva to get more international diva questions in, in the mix. <laughs> the diva mm, good point. Today was a nice mix. You know, you got to be very suspicious of self-certifying divas. Well, let, let's be careful now. I, I, I'm sorry, but this is where error correction will help. I'm not an international diva. I'm an international superstar. <laughs> And a diva of SLA. So there's two different, that su the international goes with the superstar. So. Okay, self-certifying um, diva. But your, diva. Your point is, but your point is well taken. I did have one today. My Edith Piaf was an international diva question today. So, okay. All right. That corrected. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Appreciate okay. it. Thanks for okay. calling, Thanks for calling. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, that was great. Okay, uh, we've got another phone call coming here in a minute. Uh, do we have a time for a quick Mixler comment or an email question before we take the next call? I've got a quick one from Alona in Georgia. She oh, wants to know, do Bill, it. do you personally believe it is ever worthwhile or beneficial to explicitly teach conjugation cards in an L2 classroom? Conjugation no. charts. No, never. So no stage, no. does it matter? It should never be included. Well, that's the question is, is whether it's beneficial. And the answer is no. Whether or not you include it is another story. <laughs> I mean... I can do all kinds of things to myself knowing they're not beneficial, for example, right? But, right. Um, and, and so those are two separate questions. But so the answer to the first is it's not beneficial for acquisition. Um, sometimes it has an affective component where people go, I just want to see what it looks like. And you go, okay, so you put a, you put a chart up on the wall. Here, so here's what it looks like. But we're not going to do anything with it. The reason, and that makes people feel good for some reason, but the reason I don't like doing that, because the minute you start doing that, you try to make that the product of acquisition, and that chart is not what winds up in your head. I don't know how many times I can say this. Language in your head is not what you see in a chart. 
or on page 32 of the textbook or what you find on Google. That's not what winds up in your head. But the minute you put that stuff in front of people, they think it is, and then they try to learn that thing. Um, and so, um, and we can talk more about that um, in another show, because uh, I think it's a recurring theme. But so I, I don't like doing it because I think it gives the wrong impression about what the product actually is. How's that? Uh, that's great. Thank you. Okay, let me take this next call. We got a caller, Joe. Joe, are you on the line? I am. Hey, Hello? Joe, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Joe, did you call from, before from Atlanta or is that a different person I did, from Atlanta? Yes. Oh, yes, God. Person. God, those memories that Ginkgo Bilboa, whatever it's called, is working <laughs> on me. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe, what are you calling about? What's up? Um, so, last time I called in, I won this wonderful copy of your book and I was reading it and I had a question uh -huh. about something. Um, and it's actually oh the chapter that gosh. I think you're focusing on today. Even better. Um, but I couldn't <laughs> listen to the first 40 minutes of the story because I, or the, the, the show, because I have class. Um, but so, my question is um, when you talk about um, developmental sequences, um, is that uh, referring to learners' interpretation of morphemes? or their output of morphemes? Um, hmm. Or is there a, a difference between those? Um, there is a slight difference. The, the, the developmental sequences are almost all based on oral data, spontaneous oral data. Um, and, and so, or, or quasi-spontaneous data. It's, it's not data gathered by a paper and pencil test or anything like that. Um, and so uh, developmental sequences uh, have not been tested through comprehension. A, a couple of people have tried to, and it just doesn't work because the, the, the methodology for doing that is just not quite there. I think where we need to be. So okay. it's all based. It's all based on um, on output data. But the other kinds of things that, um, for example, like masculine comes before feminine, and those things are based on both oral data and comprehension data, or what we call processing data. And so um, we see things, for example, like Here's, here's a quick example. We can give um, a self-paced reading test or a self-paced listening test where um, some sentences are grammatical, where the adjective agrees with the noun, and then some sentences are ungrammatical, the adjective doesn't agree with the noun. And what we find in that, where the learners aren't speaking, is that when we measure their reading times or listening times, um, they are better with the grammatical and ungrammatical sentences that are masculine and worse with the feminine sentences, for example, at the beginning. Um, and it takes a while for those kinds of things. We do the same thing with, with um, subject-verb agreement. I did a study on this that was published back in 2012 with self-paced reading data that shows um, certain things coming before other things um, showing up in the self-paced reading data. But again, but th those are particular small pieces of language. Developmental sequences are about a whole structure, like negation or question formation or the, you know, how you make predicate structures with set and a start and things like that. Um, those developmental sequels are almost all based on oral data. So they're slightly different. So there's two different kinds of order development that we're talking about in our, in our research here. Okay. Um, thank you. All right. Thank you, Joe. And you're going to be uh, entering the uh, book drawing contest with your, because you called in, so maybe you get a second book. You never know. <laughs> I'll give it to one of my coworkers. All right. Uh, if you, you so want, if you if you win, if you win, um, go ahead and send me an email um, who you want it to go to, and I'll sign it for that person. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks okay. for calling, Joe. Yep. Bye. There we go. Great.
That was good. That was a, a good. He actually was had his had his book in front of him. That was great. That was great. I like it. I thought I recognized Joe from Atlanta. See. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna go ahead and do our book drawing. Do we have Angelica is pulling a name out of a cup, and the name that she just pulled is. Luca from East Lansing. Seriously, Luca, <laughs> Luca come Luca on. Luca has been trying come for on, weeks. Luca. She has been trying for weeks. Okay, here it goes. Rachel from Bulgaria. Yay, Rachel Yay. from Bulgaria is going to win in a book. Great. Okay, um, that, Rachel, that book will be winging its way, uh, way to you in the mail next week along with your other prize for, no, she didn't, she, she did the SLA challenge question, right? Or yeah. What did she do? What did no. she do? I don't know. I, I don't see no, anything she called on in our for screen a, uh, right just now. For a she called in for a question. That's what yeah. she called in, just yeah. for a question. All right. Okay. Just say hi to you. Say hi. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Anyway, so you, uh, Rachel, your book will be winging its way to you sometime this next week. Uh, I'm going to take it with me to East Lansing this next week, and we'll mail it from the office. So, um, God, we're almost at the end of our hour. Do you think you have time for a today. super quick question? I have time for a super quick question. Yeah, we got okay. about two minutes. Um, to what extent does an individual's L1 impact the order of acquisition in adult learners? If it does, is there an impact of the first language? Um, so far, the research shows there's a minimal impact. There is some impact on, there, there's been some research on Japanese that, for example, the morpheme orders, that certain things in the noun phrase are impacted, but nothing in the verb phrase is. So like the ing before past tense before third person s shows up in japanese just like or japanese learns of english just like it does spanish learns of english and turkish learns of english but something looks odd about the way the noun phrases um in japanese are acquired so it, it could be that some languages affect some particular parts of um morpheme orders but um it we only have the only research we have on that is actually japanese learners of english that's the only only ones that have shown up and it's not all the studies show that. Only a couple of studies actually show that. Enough that suggests we need to keep looking at it. For developmental sequences um, and stage development, there seems to be literally no L1 influence on the actual stages themselves. Um, but there just seem to be some L1 influence in how long learners linger in a stage, how quickly they get in and out of a stage. All right. That's awesome. my answer. Thank Dustin, you. why? Dustin is smiling at me. Dustin, you've got a big smile on your face. I like that. Why, why is that? Just a beautiful man, Bill. <laughs> oh, I know. Creepy. Dustin, Creepy. people are going to know our secret, Dustin. <laughs> Quiet. All right. I'm going to go ahead and do our acknowledgements. How's that sound? Awesome. I think it's time. With that comment from Dustin, I'm going to do the acknowledgements. <laughs> so here we go. As usual, we always start off by thanking our technical producer, Daniel Trego, without whom we could make this show work. Our media producer, Luca Giappone, who's not going to win a book. He should just ask me for one. <laughs> We want to thank our normal, trusted, and talented call handler, Dustin DeFelice, who's actually in the studio today with Angelica, who's being a co-host. So we thank you for co-hosting today. And we want to thank Chad, who actually managed the phones today, Chad Bosley, who managed the phones for Dustin today while he was in the studio with Angelica. Uh, Ryan is off today. The College of Arts and Letters, we'd like to thank them for their help and support, especially our Dean, Christopher Long. And as a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, we thank all the callers today and all of you out there who are listening to our show. You are a wonderful audience. We love you. All right. Uh, next week, I'll be back in the studio with Angelica and Walter. He should be back from, where is he again? Chicago. Chicago. 
Chicago. Um, shouldn't there be some music on or something right now? <laughs> there it is. He was waiting for you. <laughs> there you go. So I'll be back in the uh, studio with Angelic and Walt next week. And we will continue our countdown. The topic next week is going to be on input in the classroom. So we'll be focusing a little bit on that. And uh, call in for a chance to win a book next week. Until then, have a great weekend. And happy second language acquisition to everybody. See you later, kids. Auf Wiedersehen. Schönen Nachmittag. See you later. Wow, the enthusiasm. Thanks again, Dustin, for sitting in. We Thanks for you, having Dustin. me. You. You're All awesome, right. Dustin. <laughs> Bye-bye, everybody.